I was intrigued by a travel writer who gave an answer to a, an interviewer who was wondering how come the travel writer always had such good stories and the interviewer said, when I travel, nothing happens to me. The travel writer answered in this way and said, it's really simple. I travel in such a way that things happen to me. What he really meant was that he doesn't travel first class, right? First class travel intentionally creates artificial experiences for us, while at the same time ensuring that nothing real or unnatural happens. So basically, we don't experience the place we're traveling, we just get to travel in this perfect environment. So if you have a life history of traveling as a peasant in third or fourth class, don't feel bad about that. That's where things happen. That's where life happens. That's where the stories come from. My husband Steve and I were on such a journey in the late 90s. We found ourselves one night riding overnight on and over through Eastern Europe in a compartment on an old Russian troop train that had been conscripted for public use. Um, the tickets had been very cheap, and we were happy to have them. The train was past its date. At one time, it must have been something. But right now, it was kind of like a heavy, overweight, over-made-up, middle-aged woman who had been out all night drinking and woke up still drunk. <laughs> like it was just, there was literally a, a um, toothless porter who pushed a Kroger cart up and down. It wasn't Kroger, but you get the drift. Up and down, through the train, it was full of beer. And people were buying the beer, and the, the train was getting louder and louder. It was interesting. Around midnight, when we were going through Slovenia, something happened. We're sitting in our little compartment, and all of a sudden, the door bangs open unceremoniously, and this very tall, very heavily built, not fat, but big man, backs into our little compartment. We have no idea what's happening. He kind of bursts into our compartment, and when he turns around, we realize that in his arms, he's carrying another man of equal height, a large man, but a little slimmer, and he's carrying him the way you would carry a small child who fell asleep in the car, and you had to bring them into bed. We just kind of watched this happen, and they got settled. And once they were settled, they turned and looked at us and smiled. And we talked a bit, and pretty soon we realized that the slighter man could speak English. And he spoke English gently and with this intelligent humor. He told us that he had learned English from watching TV all day. When the two finally started telling us our story, we realized that this was a very interesting couple to meet. They were brothers. And their names were um, Donagel and Dabar Peterlin, or Petterlin. I'm sure I'm spelling it wrong, uh, saying it wrong. I'm sure Tavit could, could correct me. And um, what had happened was when, when um, Dabar was 13 and Donagel was older, they had been swimming in a river. And there had been an accident, and Dabar had broken his neck and been paralyzed. And from that day on, his older brother took up the task of carrying him. And he would just sweep him into his arms. Dabar had the use of his shoulders and arms. Donagel would sweep him into his arms and carry him. He had carried him back and forth to school through his whole schooling. He had carried him to school events. They didn't have um, a chair. And so here's Donagel. He's like a 
huge, muscular guy who would sweep up his brother Debar and carry him. They were fanatic about basketball. They were, in fact, on their way to Rome to a Final Four basketball game, not NBA, obviously, but they were on their way to Rome to, to watch a Final Four basketball game, and Donagel was carrying Debar. They were wonderful. They were from Slovenia. They told us that their country had only had one war, it's a fairly young country, and it had only lasted 10 days, but they were quite proud of it. <laughs> and if anything could happen in their life, it would be to come to America and watch basketball. That would be wonderful. We talked all night. They were so happy to use their English, and we were happy to hear their stories. And sometime in the wee hours of the morning, we had another stop, and we exchanged emails, and Donna Jell put on his huge backpack, swept Debar up in his arms, and they went out the door. It was a most interesting night. The gospel story that we read this morning flashes me back to that night going through the mountains of Slovenia on that old Russian train. Mark tells us of four men lumbering through town, somehow carrying a friend on some kind of mat, and they have an intention that they're going to find Jesus. The problem was that everyone else in the town had the same intention. Everyone was trying to find Jesus. And so when they got to the house, there was immediate disappointment. It says, the scripture says that the house was packed and all the outside as well. There are people on the street. There are people packed in every possible way. It's an intense crowd. It's a loud crowd. It's a pushy crowd. And with them, with their carrying this mat, there's no way they can kind of snake in through the crowd and get to an advantage spot. I wonder what their backstory was. I wonder what that made them so intent on taking this friend to Jesus. How had they become this little community that would do such a thing? Was there a day, I wonder, when they ran as a pack, feeling invincible, like boys do? Did something happen suddenly, or was it a slow deterioration that made one of them finally become still? How many times had they carried him to the temple, or to a wedding, or to the market? Was his paralysis a mystery to them, or were they complicit in it? Why did they carry him? For whatever reason, they were determined. But the plan they came up with was madness, was complete madness. They snuck around the back, found a way up onto the roof, and began to dig through the roofing, the tiles, the sod, the thatch, whatever it was on the roof. I wonder if they didn't laugh at the ludicrousy of what they were doing and had to encourage one another on. It sounds so mischievous. And finally, a shower of dirt falls in the house, and the blinding sun comes into a dark room, and everyone looks up, and there are four faces peering down. <laughs> Can't you just see it to see if they're in the right place? It's like, you know, people dig out of prison, and they end up in the, you know, in the mayor's house. Like, they're on their way. They've got to... I love it. Jesus looks up and laughs. The scripture says he looks up, and he was delighted with what he saw. I can just see this. You know why he laughs? Because for, for the first time in that room, that room full of mixed motives and manipulation and self-righteousness, he looks up and he sees audacious, pure faith, like the faith of a child. And they lower him down, their friend, on a mat. Now, a little aside, 
I have to do these little asides. I just want to say that even if this story wasn't located in the book of Mark, I would know that it was not written by a woman. If a woman wrote this story, there would be some point about the chaos. Like, it is the roof. It is my living room roof you have just taken off. <laughs> you have created a mess. Who's going to put it on? Is there rain coming tomorrow? Like, there's a whole large part of this story that is untold. Okay? I just want to say, and as a woman, I feel it. But I'd also like to say this, that community always, almost always, ends up in a mess. Community is chaos. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that building community is not a sterile experience? It never goes quite right, and someone always ends up late cleaning up the mess. So when you think of that story in Mark, I wonder who you identify with. Are you the one who loves to pick up the mat with someone broken on it and take them to Jesus and create an audacious plan and strategize and make something happen? Are you that person who's always there ready to do that? Or do you seem to be the person that's always on the mat? That there's so many times you just need someone to come and pick you up and carry you. This story has a beautiful wholeness to it that I want us to notice. The wounded man is carried to Jesus by his friends. But in encountering Jesus, he is made whole, and he is given dignity, and he then leaves standing up carrying his own burden. This is very important to see as we think about community, this wholeness, that there are times when we are carried to Jesus, and then there are times that we carry our own burden. Galatians 6, uh, 2 is a classic uh, scripture talking about carrying each other's burdens. Galatians 6 says, carry one another's burdens, for in this way you fulfill the law of God, which is the law of love. But three verses later after saying that, it says, now each one of you must carry your own burden. But I see that as the wholeness. I see that as the reciprocal movement of community, that we move from being carried to carrying our own load, to carrying someone else's load, to being carried. And that's the reciprocal movement of community. So there is something in this story that we as Asbury need to think about as we build community and as we seek for that community to become what we would call redemptive community. So first of all, let's consider the strong among us. You don't have to hold up your hand, but you know who you are. I'm actually one of you. I first want to say thank you. I want to tell you that when you step into someone else's life and lift their load, you are fulfilling the law of God. And our community could not exist without it. I want to tell you that when you do it, it looks so natural to you that we think it's easy. But I know that it costs you something. And I know that you take that role when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. You are a gift of God to our community. But have you started to learn that unless you're also willing to let people see your weakness and carry you, that you are eventually going to be a danger to the community and you are going to deform the community? That's a hard word, isn't it? For the strong person, the one who has always found a way to make it on their own, the hardest thing in the world is to be seen as weak in any context. 
In fact, we will do anything to protect ourselves from that. We'll take an entourage to, to a conference so that we're always surrounded by people and we never have to have an honest conversation with anyone. We will hide our weakness and we'll do everything we can to cover it in so many different ways because we have to be the one who's strong. Let me suggest a couple things that happened and why I say that ends up damaging the community. First of all, when you're always strong, always the one to help, it means that someone else always has to be weak. And others can be put in the role of simply always being the needy one. And the gifts of those who you are seeking to help might be silenced. That is a very real danger in a community. Secondly, I'm concerned about when you step into ministry. When we step into ministry and we have not learned the lesson that we are also the weak, we begin to forget that we are bearing people to Jesus and we think that we are bearing people. And we begin to, instead of carrying the burdens of others to the Lord, we carry the burdens of others. And what happens then is burnout, exhaustion, frustration. As well as that, when you get to that point and you do not know how to sustain your ministry in a healthy way, you have not, like Moses learned, or Moses learned from his father-in-law, you cannot do this alone. When you have not learned that, it makes you susceptible to addictions and other marginal behaviors because you have to soothe yourself. You cannot live with that pressure. And community is the answer to that very grave deformity. You are strong. You will be strong. You are called to be strong. But you are not called to bear the burdens of everyone. And God intends for you to let other people bear your burdens. How long has it been since someone knew where you are really weak? Not where you, you know, I learned early that I could look vulnerable without being vulnerable. Because there's a whole lot of areas that look weak, but I don't really care about them. And so if someone needs to know I'm weak, I can tell them, look, I'm weak, you can help me. I'm like you, I'm weak. But then I've got the real weak stuff. Nobody knows about that. How long has it been since you let someone into the you that is really weak and needs help. Very interesting. You know, in America, it is the right thing to be strong, to be independent, to be full of bull, to not need others. It is American to do that, but it's holy to release control and let others step in and bear our burdens. Needing help does not negate our strength. That is such an important thing to learn. And if you could get this, it would help you immensely, even in your academics. How many times have you not asked a question because you thought everyone else knew the answer? How many times have you not asked for help? You have not gone to get advice. You have felt like you had to keep the image up that you know what everybody else knows. I just want you to know, no one else knows either. You're a whole bunch of people doing that. If you could release yourself from those self-protections, you would exceed your expectations. But you can't do it alone. I would like to also point out that you cannot be carried if you don't want to be. 
Have you ever tried to pick up a three-year-old who doesn't want to be picked up? <laughs> Suddenly, they weigh 200 pounds, and they slide through your fingers like one of those rubber things. A lot of us go through our life like that. Someone might see through our, our protection and come to pick us up, and we go into the dead sack mode. And there's no way anyone's helping us. I just want to say that, because you all know it's true. So that's my word for the, the strong, and I am among you. Here's my word for those who feel like they're maybe more needy. They need to be carried. You have no problem being carried. You're carried often. You need to be carried. You look forward to being carried. But I want to say this. There is no shame in needing to be carried. There is no shame in that. In fact, Jesus needed people to carry him. Jesus had a group of women women who took care of his needs, who fed him and gave him money. What would you think an evangelist who takes money from women? Just put that in your hat and chew it for a while. Now that's a mixed metaphor. That doesn't work. In his deepest pressure at the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pled with his friends, almost begged them to stay with him. Won't you stay with me? He knew they were going to run, but he begged them not to. He needed them. Jesus needed to be carried. There is no shame in that. And this is how the kingdom is designed. The kingdom is designed in such a way that none of us have all the gifts. None of us have all the wisdom. None of us have the full word from God. We must be together and share it. That's how the kingdom is designed. And let me say this as well. There are seasons in our life where it feels like we are nothing but weak and we don't know what to do about it, we didn't create it, it just is. Times of deep sorrow, times of tragedy, times of sickness, times of great failure or great, you know, uh, there are times when our life implodes and we are just weak and someone better pick us up. But those seasons were never intended to be forever. When we receive help, though, what we are receiving is a sign of God's love for us. I was at the New Room Conference last week, and I met an old friend of mine. We went to school here 20 years ago. His name is Tommy, and he was telling us about how he had a stroke at Christmas. We knew that, but we hadn't heard his story. Interestingly, what he said was, he said, you know how we always say, like, if a crisis happened, if we got in a car accident or had a stroke, we would pray? He said, that's not true. Actually, I didn't pray. I was laying on the floor, and everything was happening, and I couldn't pray, and I didn't know what was going on. All I was trying to do was figure out how to keep breathing. I couldn't, I couldn't pray. And then he realized that his son-in-law had come down, knelt beside him, was holding his head, and his son-in-law prayed for him the whole time until the ambulance came, just spoke life over him. His son-in-law carried him to Jesus. And there are times when you cannot carry yourself to Jesus. But I want to remind everyone who finds themselves in that role that that is not your permanent role in the community. That God has given you gifts that you must use. That the community needs what you have and you need to stand up sometimes and carry your own load and bring your gifts into the community because we need them. And because it gives you dignity. You don't have to be the one who's always carried. You have something to bring. That is how redemptive 
community works. And remember, we are carried to Jesus by one another. It is Jesus who sustains us and Jesus who makes us strong. Jesus is the source of our strength, not the one who's carrying us. And if the same person carries you too often, you begin to think they are Jesus for you. Very unhealthy. Because in truth, in the kingdom of God, when we need to be carried, God often sends us the absolutely wrong person. You know, you have in your mind some lovely person who you admire and adore, who you think is spiritually wonderful, and you want them to come and pray for you. And instead of that, he sends some reprobate who you don't think anything of, <laughs> and you have lots of reading. You heard him talk in class. You think he's a jerk. And God sends him, and he, he bears Jesus to you. And it's really hard and really annoying and makes you feel totally out of control. But if you receive it, the grace of God will flow to you for healing. A redemptive community knows these things. We share the roles of guest and host. And we also offer strength when we have it, and we ask for help when we need it. And there is chaos, and things get messy, and the roof falls in, and that's what God calls community. And that's what redemptive community looks like. There will always be a mystery to someone else's pain. We don't know what it costs a person to bear what they bear in their life. We don't know how deep the pain goes and how far it goes back. And the pain of other people is not solved easily. And we must be become a discerning community so we can make wise choices of when to step in, when our stepping in will help, and when our stepping in actually deforms. And we can only do that by living in this community of give and take. The redemptive community matures, and this flows both ways. But we have to learn these things. They are not the way of our culture. What I'm telling you is not the way of our culture. So I ask you this question. Is your spirit strong enough to accept help? Is your spirit strong enough to accept help? Community is our chance to wrestle with th these things and break the barriers of self-reliance and control so that our ministries can become sustainable. I believe that in community, we practice on each other how to be in relationship with God. I think community is our practice for being in relationship with God. In community, we learn about letting go. We learn about acknowledging our need for help. We learn about coming to Jesus with the burdens instead of trying to manage them on our own. We learn that for ourselves, sometimes our burden is too great for us. And we become a conduit of love, and especially when we allow others to give to us, we become that full circle of love. So I've come to believe, you might not agree with me, but I've come to believe that we cannot be holy with Jesus until we are learning how to be in community. Those are not separate things. So as we come to the table of our Lord, I want you to reflect on the ways that you have been carried to Jesus. Who carried you to this place and time? I can tell you that I would not be here if I hadn't been carried to Jesus over and over through my life. Brian Russell, who's a dean in Florida, 
often quotes this line, that the gospel comes to us on its way to someone else. But I would like to say that the gospel lives in us on its way to someone else. It comes to us from someone, it lives in us with someone, and it goes out to someone else from us. The gospel is a living relationship. A pastor told of a story of a couple in his church, a couple who had lived faithfully and lovingly within the community for years. Slowly they aged and disintegrated, as we all will. And finally the old man was hospitalized with stomach cancer and the pastor got word that he could neither eat nor drink, but that they were going to send him home so that he could be comfortable until the end. The next Sunday, as was their habit, they showed up for the service, much to the pastor's surprise. The wife had managed to get him there and she gently pushed him up to a pew and in his wheelchair and he sat there and just seemed to enjoy being in the service. And the pastor was so happy to have him there. But when Eucharist started, that's when the amazing thing happened. As the Eucharist was, the, the uh, altar was open for Eucharist, the woman got up and she wheeled her husband forward to the altar and she knelt down beside him. The pastor didn't know what to do for sure, but he came up and he offered the man the bread. And the man very weakly reached out and took the bread. And then the pastor offered the man the cup. And the very sick man reached out and dipped his bread in the cup. And then he gave it to his wife and she ate it. And then she took her own bread and dipped it in the cup and ate it. Friends, we are carried to the table. And we will be carried to the table again, and we will carry others to the table. We did not come alone, and we will not leave alone. 